the mind wants to avoid suffering, the mind is looking for happiness. And what the Buddha did with his teaching is using that tendency, but in a very wise way, so that it actually truly leads us out of suffering. As I say, uh, once bitten, twice shy, or was it once burned, twice shy? Once bitten, it doesn't matter, it works for both. Now, once once you get bitten by a dog, now you're careful because it hurts, so you will not easily touch him. It's the same with the fire. You know, the moment we learn as a child that the fire is hot, now then after that, after one experience, how painful that is to touch the fire, you know, we naturally avoid it. All that was required is the understanding. I touch it, it will hurt. It may look very interesting for a child, or a dog may be very interesting, but the moment the pain comes and we can clearly see the causal relationship, doing that, touching the hot thing, painful, you don't really have to teach or force people not to touch it again. They do that on their own. So where's the problem? The problem is that sometimes the relationship is not so easy to see. What we have to train ourselves is not to see it with that immediacy, with that uh, clarity. Just like we know, if I touch this flame, if I put my finger in the flame, it will just hurt. That's why I never do it, at least not voluntarily or consciously with awareness. The problem is that the relationship between craving and dukkha is not always quite so apparent and we have to sharpen our wisdom, we have to uh, really look into it, we have to dig in to discover that and we have to show it the mind again and again so the mind can recognize it beyond any doubt. So the tendency of trying to get away from Dukkha is already there. But the first thing we have to do in this is additional step to look for the cause. Now most people try to immediately fight the Dukkha or run away from it. And this is exactly what doesn't work. This is exactly what leads to the result, like the insect and the spider web. The very effort to get out is enmeshing it further. This is why the Buddha always has the approach of doing these steps, of looking for the cause. And once you have gone to the cause, there's obviously also a cause for the cause. There's a condition for the condition. So you push back further, you push back further and undermine, undermine and take away the foundations of the whole edifice of Dukkha. Now that is what we have to do. This is why he gave us a duty for each of the Four Noble Truths, a very practical instruction, what actually to do with it. And although the response of the worldly person who is not trained and doesn't have understanding of the Dhamma, uh, 
is to avoid dukkha and run away from it. What is actually the duty the Buddha recommended? What do we have to do with dukkha? Run away or fight it or what? Yeah. Parinya yanti me bhikkave, as he chant. Parinya yang. And it has to be comprehended, it has to be all around understood. And the first condition for understanding something is obviously not to be willing to look at it. This is why there can be an advantage to have some dukkha. This is why it's often said no, it can be difficult to practice the Dhamma in Devaloka, such a beautiful place, no, but the, the dukkha may be so subtle, it's very difficult to see. So we can uh, consider ourselves fortunate if we have some reasonably decent dukkha, <laughs> gives us an opportunity to investigate it. And we have to, first of all, learn and to see this tendency which we have built up over the lifetimes to immediately and directly run away from dukkha or push it away. And we have to understand that this hasn't really got us anywhere. It may sometimes superficially work for a short moment. It's a little bit like you know, doing symptomatic treatment. Sometimes in Western medicine, people have noticed some of the treatments are only symptomatic. You're suppressing something, but the deeper underlying causes are not resolved. We sometimes see a natural treatment is actually in addressing the underlying causes and therefore in the long term more effective. So we have to notice this impulse that immediately when some unpleasant or painful or disagreeable experience arises in our heart that we want to wash away. And with mindfulness we have to see that and we have to understand this is not what the Buddha recommended. What he recommended is understanding it. So to be willing to look at Dukkha, to look at this experience, to observe it. And once we observe it, then we can investigate it and analyze it. Once we investigate and analyze it, quite naturally we come to the second noble truth, to the cause, the origin the condition well, that is part of that understanding, the understanding and wisdom in terms of the insight, vipassana in the Buddha's teaching is always connected with the causes and conditions. So we don't immediately reject dukkha or deny it. That is another uh, unsuccessful approach now, one way of dealing with dukkha unskillfully is simply denying it. <laughs> it's very common that this is why we always assure each other, I'm fine, are you fine? How are you? Oh, you're fine, eh? <laughs> no problem. No worries. It's all good, mate. Okay. Actually, not really, no. We have to be uh, brutally honest here. It's not all good. At least if we haven't attained Nibbana yet, if anyone has attained Nibbana, they could say it's all good or uh, no worries. But if not, if we are not even 
uh, stream hentai if you haven't even seen the Four Noble Truths, it's not all good. So denial is uh, also completely unsuitable of getting us out of Dukkha. Because however much we deny it, there's a limit. And at some stage, the reality will break through that whole denial. And if one has got a serious sickness or cancer, in the beginning, you can maybe just ignore the symptoms. But once he has an excruciating pain or body systems and organs start failing, then it's impossible to ignore it. So this doesn't work in the long run. Instead of denial, we need acknowledgement according to reality to see it as it truly is. And if there is Dukkha, if there is old age, sickness and death, we have to look at it. Once we look at it, we investigate it. Once we investigate it, and we already have a guidance of the Buddha to look for causes, then we observe in our own experience how Dukkha is always connected with craving. And uh, once the mind can make this connection very clear, just like it makes a connection touching the fire is hot and painful, uh, then the mind will shy away, not from Dukkha so much, but now from the cause of Dukkha. Because that is the duty attached to the second noble truth. Pahatabang. The cause of Dukkha has to be abandoned. That is the one where we can do the abandoning or the running away, so to speak. That is the one we try to get rid of, not directly the Dukkha, but the underlying cause. Now, once the mind becomes trained in that, uh, suffering, any form of misery, disappointment, we encounter in our life, in daily life, or the little tragedies, will actually be an incentive for our practice, will be an incentive to further reduce the craving it must become like a like a reflex uh, like an automatic reaction that if they are suffering that the mind immediately goes towards craving and wants to reduce the craving instead of running away or attacking the dukkha now this detour has become implanted has become a, a natural instinctive response, that is the idea. Whatever Dukkha arises, we immediately connect it with the craving and defilements in our heart and go against that. And you see, that's not what is normally happening with people who are not trained in that. Usually people lash out externally, trying to find some, someone to blame outside. If it's not a person, then one can blame the weather or the climate or bad luck, but very commonly in some external person or sometimes blaming themselves. Now, that is also not very successful. will not get us out of Dukkha because the whole idea of self, I, me, mine is ultimately a delusion. And blaming a delusion something which is actually not really there in that sense in which we misunderstand it or assume it to be, 
that doesn't make any sense. So in blaming oneself for one's suffering is also not appropriate. What has to be blamed and addressed is the craving, which is a kind of umbrella term. The craving here includes all the defilements. Now, once that is established, it means that any suffering we encounter and is immediately directed towards abandoning defilements, towards reducing craving. I'm sometimes surprised when people lose faith in the Buddha's teaching because suddenly something goes wrong and they encounter suffering. I could understand if someone doesn't encounter any suffering, if they lose faith in the Buddha. That would make sense. And if there wasn't any suffering, the whole teaching wouldn't wouldn't really work. And what, what's the point? But the moment we encounter suffering and pain and disappointment and loss and hardship, to me it's always a confirmation, a vindication of the whole Dhamma the Buddha was teaching. And similar, it's surprising, why would it be something to demotivate us and to cause us to kind of give up? Quite the contrary, any suffering should be a further incentive, a further motivation to go for the cause and take it out. However, some of you may have noticed it's not so easy to take out craving of the heart. And uh, the Buddha is aware of that as well. And again, it's a somewhat indirect approach. Sometimes you can feel craving very powerfully in our heart. For example, in COVID-19, when people can't breathe, or the person who recently died with someone kneeling on them complaining, I can't breathe. This is one example. And when you try to, to breathe, and there's a very powerful craving. You know that feeling that we want to breathe? Or the other basic desires. And sometimes when we want to sleep or when we need some food or we are thirsty. That's actually the literal meaning of, of tanha, the thirst in a hot country like India or here in Queensland in summer. We can relate to that, this powerful craving in our heart. And uh, we may have already learned from the Buddha, craving is a cause of suffering. So we may not try to battle that directly. It's always great. Now going against the stream of craving is always in itself praiseworthy. And uh, however, we may have noticed it doesn't really work. You cannot just willpower against willpower, so to speak. Now, there's a craving, here's my willpower, and you just push. That may be a stopgap measure to stop us doing something really bad karma. Uh, but the real approach, again, is a little bit more indirect. Because how do we abandon craving? How do we do that? by developing the whole Eightfold Path. And, so, and that relationship is sometimes not so clear. 
not everyone may see that so clearly. Why does uh, communicating with kind words at the right time and truthfully in difficult situation, uh, in how far does it abandon uh, my basic craving for sensuality or something like that? But the relationship is there. And uh, over time, when the whole Eightfold Path is being developed, and then we work on all these different path factors and diligently, well, we notice that after some time, the, suddenly the craving is, is less and the defilements are weaker. And the Buddha compared it with someone using a tool, like Harley, he's been working a lot, three months. What was the tool he used most? A drill. <laughs> and uh, so if you hold the drill and you do a lot of drilling uh, in the evening, would you notice any different on the uh, on the handle uh, where you hold it? There's no real difference. But if you use a drill over a couple of years and every day, you will notice that the handle starts wearing out. One uses it many years and slowly wears out. Now, this is how it works. And uh, every day, every month, every year, and if we are working and developing this eightfold path, then a very profound, deep sense you know, this weakening, restricting, undermining, filing away, grinding away you know, on, on craving and the defilements until one day you know, they suddenly will drop away. So the important point is we have to see the connection between craving and suffering. Because once that connection is clearly seen, the mind will let go of the craving because it knows it leads me into pain and the mind doesn't want pain. And all for that, all that is required is a very clear seeing. In order to do that, we cannot just run away from our suffering and our misery and our pain. We can also not just deny it. We cannot directly fight it. And we have to do this indirect step and see how it is caused by craving, by defilement. And then what we try to abandon is actually the craving, not the dukkha. We go straight for the craving. That must become a automatic uh, uh, instinctual ref reflex-like response. There's pain, there's suffering, and you direct it immediately for an effort to bend the craving. But bending the craving has to be done skillfully. It has to be by developing the whole eightfold path. This is, so it's a little bit more difficult to see. You know? I've got a headache and I pop a Panadol. This is much more direct, it's easier to see. I lose a loved one and I sit on my meditation cushion and radiate matter to all beings. It's not, not so directly apparent what is the connection there. It requires more wisdom and more insight or at least faith in the Buddha that the connection is there and that it does work.
then once we develop that eightfold path over years and the defilements get undermined and weakened and ground away, the time will come when all these eight path vectors will work together in unison and will be strong enough to generate the insight which can completely cut away the craving. And then the third noble truth will be realized and the end of craving has been attained and the end of craving is the end of all pain and misery, also known as Nibbana. <laughs>